Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here in these podcasts. This week in the podcast I'm talking to Lee Gatiss, Director of Church Society, about our latest publication, Gospel Flourishing in a Time of Confusion, and I'm also asking him about the Lent resources we have coming up, so do make sure to keep listening to the end uh, to find out about those. Lee Gatiss, uh, Church Society have just published a new book with a cover that is coral pink called Gospel Flourishing in a Time of Confusion. Can you tell us um, what this book is about and where it has come from? Thank you, Roz. Yes, uh, Pantone Colour of the Year, coral on the front uh, of the book. That's right. Well, um, the inside, the content of the book um, addresses some of the key questions that are facing us as a constituency at the moment in the Church of England. We're in a time of real confusion and uncertainty about the future, whether we should stay in the Church of England or not, um, and make, make the most of all the opportunities that there are in the Church of England for proclaiming the gospel, um, or should we leave for pastures new? Um, since things have become so difficult and some people have decided to leave and some people are deciding to stay so what should we do um, that's the big issue at the moment and this is that's what this book will be looking at and just to explain uh, where the material in this book came out of it it really is a sort of fruit of the merger that happened last year between Fellowship of Word and Spirit and Church Society and, and even reform in a way as well isn't it Yes, that's right. So the first chapter is by um, uh, Bishop Rod Thomas, who was chairman of Reform. Uh, there are several people from the Fellowship of Word and Spirit, including the former chairman of FWS, Rob Monroe, um, and James Hughes, and me from Church Society, and uh, Wallace Ben, who was president of both FWS and Church Society. So this is very much a fruit of the merger of the three organisations last year. And the um, material came out of two different conferences, didn't it? Which, um, it was quite a week, they, so some of us were at... Well, one well, it was a sort of study day rather than a conference on the Wednesday, and then and then a conference on the Saturday of the same week. So the study day was organised by Fellowship of Word and Spirit, and there were I can't remember. I guess there were about twenty or so of us there, maybe, and various papers presented and discussion uh, around that. And then Church Society conference, which followed, um, at which you and Rod Thomas both spoke on, and that was sort of I guess the the two conferences were slightly differently um, uh, set up, weren't they? So the Church Society Conference, How Do We Flourish in the Church of England? Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference was really dealing with those issues around should we leave, should we not, how do we know when it's got too bad, all of that kind of stuff. So maybe a slightly more negative and a slightly more positive uh, tone. But you put them together into into one volume for us. Yes, because some of the same issues were going around in both of those things. The context of flourishing is this time of confusion, which is leading people to think about whether we should be leaving the church, uh, the Church of England or not. I mean, I say at the beginning of my chapter on um, a brief history of secession, uh, leaving the Church of England, um, that I think there are there are four main things that are driving evangelicals to consider that as a subject at the moment we feel instinctively to to start with the the displeasure of god at our society and at our church our consciences as evangelicals are deeply disturbed by the moral climate of our nation and the doctrinal the disciplinary chaos that there is in the church 
So that's the first thing that's leading us to think about it. And although we are flourishing and wanting to flourish, that's the context that we see ourselves in. Well, secondly, there's the displeasure of the hierarchy, um, which, which, you know, all the obstacles that we face in the Church of England at the moment, given the trajectory on various things and the way that evangelicals, particularly conservative and complementarian uh, evangelicals, the displeasure, the incessant official frowns that we receive in uh, in various uh, polite or impolite ways within the system. And that makes people wonder whether this is somewhere we truly can flourish or not, and makes us wonder about pastors new. And um, thirdly, we sense the uselessness of the Church of England system to combat the kind of rampant secular atheism that we see on our TV screens and on the radio, we hear on the radio, we see in our newspapers, and the widespread ignorance of Christianity in our country. And it just makes you wonder whether this really is the best way to do this. Um, yeah. Given that we're Christians, we want to spread the gospel. Is this the best way to do it? Is the Church of England really working? And the direction of travel, you know, finally in the Church of England. The trajectory of um, revisionism and liberalism within the church is not encouraging. Um, and, the, you know, things, it may not be, the, you know, the, the, the triumph of liberalism may not be imminent or inevitable um, within the Church of England. It certainly has proven in other places, particularly in America recently, that it's not inevitable that the liberals will will win. Um, the Met the Methodist churches this week decided to to maintain a traditional line on uh, same sex marriage and other things, which is good. Yeah, really encouraging, and and I don't think it was by any means a sort of um, shoe in that that would happen. No. You know, there was no. genuine pressure for for change there. So I don't think it's inevitable or imminent that that kind of triumph of liberalism is going to happen in England, but. Um, the trajectory isn't exactly encouraging either. It's not unimaginable, is it? Yes. So um, just in terms of the book, um, rather mm. than simply your chapter. Um, <laughs> so I guess we could say that it's trying to do some different things, isn't it? The first couple of chapters thinking about the contemporary context. Um, so Rod Thomas and Wallace Benn uh, looking at that. And then there's some biblical material um, and then some historical material to put that into a broader context. So in mm. terms of the contemporary context, uh, Rod Thomas uh, flourishing in the Church of England, Wallace Venn asking whether this is a, a season for secession. And you've mentioned already some of the reasons why people might think this was a season for secession and why some yes. people are already beginning to leave the Church of England. I don't think that's the conclusion that both Rod and, and Wallace come to, is it? That it, that really this is a time for us to be uh, immediately kind of packing up our bags and, and walking out. No, they say the opposite, in fact. They, they are telling us to stand firm and fight on um, and to continue in the Church of England, but realising the difficulties that we face um, realistically in doing that. So Rod um, very helpfully outlines some of the positive things that enable the gospel to flourish in the Church of England. I mean, you and I are here because in the Church of England, because evangelical churches have flourished in the Church of England. The yeah. gospel has been flourishing and that's why we're here. So whatever we think of the strategies of the last 50 to 100 years, um, they have worked in a sense because we are the fruit of that. We are here 
um, yeah. as church society and as an individual. I'm here because um, evangelical Anglican churches reached out with the gospel and built me up with the gospel and helped me to be a disciple of Christ. And Rod outlines some of the ways in which that's positively happening, but then he sort of flips it and says, well, all the problems are related to some of the strengths of the Church of England. And there's also another side of the coin. There are some weaknesses when the Church of England doesn't do what it's meant to do. Um, that's when we have some problems and so he says well we should stay we should fight on we should flourish um but there are some priorities at the end of his chapter for things that we need to be doing going forward mm. i was encouraged um just a couple of weeks ago i was at one of the days that um rod has organized sort of regional conferences yeah for churches which have um passed resolutions um, concerning women bishops so that they can have his ministry. So this is by no means all the evangelical churches in the Church of England. It no. is a really small section of those. But even within yeah, those churches, that represents more than the average number of uh, people attending church in a diocese. Yes, yeah, so Rod's diocese, if you like, of consisting of those churches which have passed resolutions, his diocese is one of the biggest in the Church of England. Um, and it's one of the growing growing dioceses in that sense. Exactly. And, the, and then, as we say, there are plenty more really good uh, Bible teaching evangelical churches of various different kinds that, that wouldn't be in that group. You know, yeah, that is yeah. just a, a sort of small sliver of that. So, That's right. you know, we're not in a situation where we have to say this is a disaster already. Um, and, and Wallace has stuff to say about that as well, doesn't he? He does, in a great chapter on a season four secession, question mark. Uh, he very insistently, <laughs> we put the question mark in there because, of course, um, it's a question we have, but he answers by saying it's not a season um, to leave. Looking at the marks of the church, and particularly some of the Reformation discussion about the marks of the church, which include not just preaching of the word and administration of the sacraments, but also ecclesiastical discipline. And that's mm. one of the things that, of course, has really broken down in the last few years in the Church of England. You, it's very difficult to be thrown out of the Church of England, even as a clergyman, for teaching and preaching and living contrary to the doctrinal standards of the Church. And that is a problem, isn't it? Um, yeah. we, ex we expect boundaries in every group, really. So imagine if you were in the Conservative Party um, and you began to develop communist sympathies. Well, sooner or later, having communist sympathies in the Conservative Party is going to lead to you probably having to leave. But you would expect the Conservative Party to throw you out before that. And it's always been the case with the church that people, um, particularly those in leadership, should preach the gospel truly and faithfully to the standards that they publicly say they hold, hold to and they should live in accordance with that. Not just hold these views privately but never teach or preach about it. Not just hold these views privately and toe the line but actually live differently. No, we could to preach and live in consistent um, outworking with, with the public profession of the church. And when that breaks down, when that is not properly policed, if you like, by bishops then that causes all kinds of problems. Yes, one, one and even more so than just any other organisation. I mean, one could say a political party or, you know, any kind of society is essentially determined by its members. And if all the members yeah. suddenly of the Communist Party suddenly realise that actually communism is awful and they should change, they, they could do that. And in a sense, they make up that party. But 
the church is not defined by its members in that way. It's not about no. what we say the church should be. And therefore, we're not at liberty to just redefine the boundaries of what counts as Christianity uh, taught and lived and so on. Yes. Um, you know, it is what God says it is. And it is, it is defined uh, by Christ who bought us with his blood. And, and so we don't have that same uh, freedom to change. Jesus is the Lord of the church, after all, not not any changeable human authority. Exactly. Jesus is the not, Lord of the not church. Not even the Queen. No, um, she may be the supreme <laughs> governor or the senior lay yeah. person in the church at the moment, but she doesn't call the shots in terms of what our doctrine and practice should be. The Lord Jesus should do that. So, okay, so we move on from that sort of um, immediate contemporary context and, and discussion of that to the biblical material. Some really mm. interesting chapters here. So James Hughes on Judges. Yeah. Um, just tell us a little bit about what he's doing with those really difficult chapters at the end of Judges and how they might speak to us. Yes, well, that it leads straight on from what we've just been talking about, really, because the chapter is about everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. A repeated refrain at the end of the book of Judges. Um, and he makes a very interesting point there that people were doing what they thought was the right thing. They weren't deliberately trying to do the wrong thing. They were trying to do what they thought was right. But everyone was doing what they thought was right and it led to some awful, horrendous um, moral and political and military decisions um, and things went astray. Um, and James looks very helpfully, I think, applying some of this, not just to the wider Church of England, but to, to evangelicals in the Church of England as well. Um, you know, we, we ourselves have to be open to the possibility that what seems like a good way of doing things to us may not be an action which honours God. And we shouldn't just do things because, well, that's the way things are done around here. That's the way things seem to work in our modern culture. We may be going along with our modern culture without realising it in, in a number of ways. And so he helpfully turns that back on us and tries to examine how we might be doing what is right in our eyes, but is not right in God's eyes. The danger to conformity with our culture um, and also of self-serving outrage, I think is a great phrase he has uh, in that yes. chapter. Yeah, really interesting, I thought, um, a, a way of just helping us to see yeah, some of the issues that we might need to deal with rather than simply uh, turning that around on those um, that we disagree with. Um, so, uh, Judges 17 to 21, and then Rob Munro... Um, he takes the theme of the remnant. Well, this is a great chapter on the remnant. It's a very important theme for thinking about um, the future of the church in a time of confusion because God tends to work through a remnant that is remaining in the church. And that's why his chapter is called Remaining Faithful. Uh, it's not just about remaining in the church, but you are the remnant that remains after God's judgment. And I think we do see all around the church and the world at the moment God's hand of judgment upon us in various ways considering what you see in Romans chapter 1 um, and what it's like mm. when the judgment of God rests upon a nation upon a society upon a culture um, all the things that Paul talks about in the second half of that chapter in Romans 1 are happening and so we have the signs of God's judgment upon us how is God preserving a remnant through that um, mm. and what is it like for us to be that yeah and it's just a helpful reminder is it that throughout the Bible um, and, and to some extent throughout all of church history, what we see is not God calling out a people and then everything going swimmingly. You know, God calls out a people 
and then they rebel and then they mess up and you know again and again have to go through the wilderness have to go through the exile have to go through sufferings and struggles and and that is not a sign that the gospel is not working um you know we shouldn't expect things to be straightforward uh, when we see the church growing and flourishing you think you know where is the church grown and flourished most in the 20th century china you know which is not a place <laughs> yes. that you would look at and think oh well you know they they had everything easy there exactly you know that's that's not the normal no. pattern for everything just to be easy no. and then the church grows the church grows um most often through times of struggle and rebellion and there's confrontation. There's always going to be confrontation during these sorts of times. So he makes this point about Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them challenging the religious and political status quo um, by proclaiming uncomfortable truths, declaring judgment on the unfaithfulness that they can see. And that is something we're forced to. We have to stand up and, and say these things and see these mm. things in our society and our church. Yeah. Yes, rather than just sort of run away into kind of ever smaller attempts at a sort of pure whatever that might even mean kind of church actually yeah. the you know the prophets and the you know are called to stay and and challenge uh, the culture that they're in and so that brings us to to how this has worked out through history and so you have two chapters here one which is a sort of brief history of secession so almost from the beginning people have been leaving the church yes. of england uh, at different times and and for different reasons. And how has that gone uh, in history, Lee? Well, I call it checks it uh, <laughs> to to look at the parallel with Brexit because there are lots of debates and arguments over this, um, just as there have been with with Brexit. There's a hard checks it and a soft checks it. Um, but people have always been talking about it and always thinking about how to do it. Um, and well, I look at some of the the major instances of that over the last 500 years or so um, within the Church of England. The Brownists, for example, in the uh, the 16th century, in the 17th century, um, beginning at uh, St. Helen's Bishop Gate in uh, Norwich. Right. You have to say that very carefully. Uh, in, in Norwich, in Norwich, Bishop Gate, um, uh, and Brown leaving the Church of England, finding his... his, um, his principles and his ways of thinking about it his convictions uh led him outside the church of england but eventually he came back um and things mm. didn't really work out well for him and i mean he punched a policeman and got put in prison for it by the end um, i mean we're not we're certainly not recommending no, I don't that think as a we're way recommending of, of going that. about it um, there was even an extraordinary time wasn't there where, where the archbishop of canterbury mm. led a a, a a secession movement away from the church of england what was going on there that's right. So I look at that's probably the biggest and most successful Chexit um, or secession that we have had from the Church of England. So there have been various groups that have left and started their own little thing, a church at a time here and there or a, a couple of ministers. But the biggest one was the non-jurors in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. And they objected to <clears throat> they objected to the oath that they had to take to the uh, the new monarchs, William and Mary, in 1688-1689 uh, and the Act of Toleration and decided they couldn't do that because they'd already taken an oath to the uh, previous monarch, James II. And so because they wanted to keep their oaths and, uh, and keep, keep their consciences mm. clear, a number of bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, left the Church of England. 
And that was able to keep going, that secession, for a long time. I mean, that is one of the most uh, far-reaching and long-standing of secessions, lasting over a century, um, and some spiritual life and influence was continued there. But it didn't last that long. There was a plan, I think, for succession. That was the key thing there. With all of these things, when there was a plan for succession to hand on things from one generation to the next, there was a, a more lasting influence. But where people didn't have that, where they just had some sort of energetic, charismatic leaders in a first generation um, deciding because of their own consciences or their own convictions that they had to leave the Church of England... If, if it just happened like that with, with individuals and some ministries, that didn't tend to last. Certainly not in the last 500 years much. The, the, the Methodists is a big um, exception to that, um, and the non-jurors would be another. But lots of other schisms were basically dribbles. People yeah. dribbled away from the Church of England, twos and threes, um, uh, over a year, two, three uh, maybe a decade, but no more. And and that meant really that the main strength of evangelicalism has always been within the Church of England, not in those smaller secession groups. On right. the whole, on right. the whole, it may be different in individual places. Sure. And of course, there are some major examples on the other side of people who have flourished and thrived and churches which left the Church of England, which are still going today. But Yes, it's not an entirely encouraging picture if one were thinking about seceding to look back and, and see how that has happened. Those are observations that is not necessarily right. a recommendation. So I'm observing those things in history, but not in order to say don't leave, but just to be aware that this is one of the problems that's kept coming up. I mean, I draw 12 lessons from the history at the end of the chapter, but that is one of them that we have to yeah. think about succession if you're yes. going to secede. Um, it isn't It isn't sort of a way of saying don't do it. It's saying if you want to do it, let's do it well. Yes. Rather than... Yeah, so then in the final chapter, you take us uh, all the way back, uh, well beyond even uh, the beginning of the Church of England uh, itself to look at the early church. Why Why do we need to uh, look all the way back there? What do we have to learn from what went on uh, in the first century and the first few centuries of the, of the church's existence? Well, the church flourished and grew in the midst of persecution and heresy in the first three centuries of our era. Um, so in the first 300 years um, since Christ was born, the church flourished, it massively expanded, there was uh, huge fruitful success in evangelism all over the world, particularly I look at the Western Church, the Roman Empire and that sort of area, um, but that was happening in a time of confusion and absolute opposition from the culture and society and religious and political establishments. So there's a lot that we can learn in our own day where we don't face the same sort of persecution in the West, um, yet um, it may come, but we don't have that now. We A lot we can learn from how they flourished in those days. And what's interesting as well is, although they their sort of external persecution was, was often very different from what we experienced, they were at the same time struggling yes. with internal uh, issues. So heresies that you mentioned and things, you know, sort of what we might think of even as opposition within the church, false teaching from within the church. Um, and maybe what can we learn about how yes. they dealt with that? Um, well, I was quite struck by this and I was reading some of the recent works on the success of the church and the triumph of Christianity in those early few years that 
the early church was an excluding church. It dealt very effectively with major heretical threats to its integrity, its cohesion, and it didn't flourish by practising what we would nowadays call good disagreement, which is really the relativizing of truth and the exaltation of unity at any cost. So they didn't say, look, we're being persecuted by the Romans. People are not listening to us. We need to get the gospel out. Let's just gloss over these differences we've got with Marcion and Pelagius and Arius and the major heretics of the day. They didn't say that. They didn't try and build a coalition of broadly Christian people um, who massively disagreed mm. on major issues. They were clear about doctrine and got the central truths of salvation, of the Trinity, um, and those doctrines clear and excluded error and heresy from the church. As, of course, the New Testament apostles told them to do, as Jesus wanted us to do. Um, so that's very striking that the early church wasn't just evangelistic and you know energetic about things it was excluding of heresy and didn't try to build sort of broad church ecclesiastical utilitarianism um, yeah. which I think is the temptation today so there we go hopefully that has whetted your appetite um, gospel flourishing in a time of confusion wisdom from the bible and church history for Anglican evangelicals uh, is now available from the church society website um don't be put off if you go to buy it from the website and it suggests that the shipping is extortionately expensive that is probably just because the drop down menu has assumed you were in australia uh, if you if you change that to indicate that you are in the uk uh, you can get it shipped at a much more reasonable rate. If you are in Australia and you want a copy, it isn't too expensive to get. get no, it it's perfectly out. reasonable amount, yes. to, you know, for it to go halfway around the world. But we can send it to you cheaper <laughs> if you're only up the road. Yeah. Um, so we will obviously put all the, the links to buy that uh, on the website. And um, this is really a, it's a book not just for uh, church leaders, is it? I think it is a book that. I would certainly recommend to people, to anyone who is concerned about what's going on in the Church of England, what the future might be for the Church of England, how to work out um, where things might be going. So it'd be a great book to read if you're on a PCC or if you're a church warden, something like that. But or you know, if you're just sort of a lay person attending a Church of England church, wanting to understand uh, something of, of how to deal with the contemporary situation. On which note, we also have um, coming up, uh, this week is Lent, and traditionally uh, on the Church Society website, we have always done a, a series of blog posts throughout Lent taking a particular theme. And this year, uh, Lee, tell us what we are doing uh, in Lent this year and, and who we're hoping uh, to help with these resources that we'll be putting out. We are going to fight valiantly, Ros. We're going to fight valiantly against the world, the flesh and the devil, which, of course, is what uh, we prayed that we'd be able to do when we were baptised in the Church of England. The, the liturgy tells us uh, after you're baptised, there's a prayer that we will fight valiantly against the world, the flesh and the devil and continue God's faithful soldier and servant to the end of our lives. And so uh, it, uh, we're going to look over those days of Lent in the in midweek um, blogs at the passages in the Bible that talk about contending for the faith, 
contending for the gospel, what that means uh, positively and negatively. And when people talk about contending, they often are trying to really talk about the issue of how we fight against false teaching. So um, I'm going to look at some of the major passages in the New Testament that talk about how we deal with false teaching, how we are to contend against it and fight valiantly for the truth and to stand firm, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6, against uh, against the devil and his minions. And I think one of the things that's really helpful in, in reminding us that actually that is what we pray for everyone who gets baptised, mm. this is not a work that is for a select few. So there may be a particular role for pastors who are to protect their flock, but actually contending for the faith is something that as as Christians we are all supposed to be doing in different ways. And, and so will there be something that will help us to see, you know, if I'm just a, a, an ordinary person going along to a church, how do I contend uh, for the gospel in my situation? I might not be on a synod, I might not be... Um, you know, having a teaching ministry. That's right, absolutely. Everybody wants to delegate these things. Uh, Nobody wants to take responsibility for them. So even ministers um, don't really want to do it very often, especially if it's controversial and difficult in these sorts of days. They want to delegate it to church society or to somebody within church society or something like that. And they get very cross if the, the people they want to delegate it to aren't doing exactly what they think should be done, but they don't want to do themselves. Um... So there's lots of that idea, we want to push it to someone else. But if you look at the Bible, it says that we're all having to, we all have to contend for the faith. Um, And things like uh, proclaiming the gospel, that's contending for the faith. Um, Praying is contending for the faith. Uh, We can all do that. And you look at uh, some of the places like uh, uh, Jude in the in the book of Jude, at the end of the book, he talks about what contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints actually is. And it turns out that that's not fighting some great battle on Synod. It's helping those who doubt. It's helping those who are wandering away from the faith and finding it hard to live a consistent Christian life in a difficult culture that is against that. And it's dragging them back to to Christ. And we can all do that. You don't have to be in pastoral ministry full time to do that. So there's lots in there. And so you're going to give us some... uh practical ways we can apply this sort of material and, and become engaged in in this in our in our own lives and um I mean you're kind of grimacing at me I mean I've I've read this stuff and there is definitely some in there yeah, yeah, that does definitely. that so definitely. you know we're going to look at the bible text see what the bible says and then we'll try and think about some applications I'll try and put some uh, some uh, questions for reflection for us to think about how the bible passages that we were looking at will apply um, I'll try and draw the, all the uh, biblical material together later on in Lent to talk about uh, 30 theses on contending. So Martin Luther had his 95 theses that he nailed up on the door uh, at the beginning of the Reformation. I've got 30 theses, 30 propositions really, about what the Bible says about contending. Great. And we'll try and apply those to the Church of England and think about what it means for us in the Church of England as evangelicals today um, to contend for the Great. faith. So there's only 30 theses, that's very restrained. (laughs) Uh, Are you going to nail them up anywhere? Well, uh, perhaps you could make a poster out of them, Ros, and we could uh, (laughs) could sell that. Uh, We may put some of this stuff in Crossway. People could nail it anywhere they want. We could put it into Crossway (laughs) and then people could have a sort of pull-out poster in Crossway and pin it up on their desks Um, at home or something. (laughs) 
so something like that we'll we'll work on that um but anyway so that is starting uh, on ash wednesday that is march the 6th on the church society website uh through throughout lent uh mondays to fridays uh so we hope you'll find that uh helpful and encouraging and uh yeah that you'll feel more equipped uh, to know what it means to contend for the faith and be able to do that whatever situation you're in that god is calling you to Next week on the podcast, I'm really delighted to be talking to Sam Albury. Sam's latest book, Seven Myths About Singleness, uh, is something that was a really refreshing read for me and uh, really encouraging. Um, As he says in the podcast, it could equally well have been called Seven Myths About Marriage. um, And it's a book that is just as interesting and helpful for married people as it is for single people. And I hope you will find that the podcast is equally relevant for both married and single people. So whichever of those is you, do tune in again next week. (laughs) 